Well, it's my privilege to introduce our uh, guest speaker this morning here on the last Sunday of our missions conference. Uh, his name is Mark Shaw, Dr. Mark Shaw. And uh, come on up here, Mark. Mark and uh, his wife, Lois. Lois is here, too. Do you mind just standing up and giving us a wave, Lois, just so we can see you, too? So, hello. And uh, uh, we have supported Mark as a missionary for, like Pat, some 20-some years. Uh, he's not in West Africa. He's in, he and his wife are in East Africa, where uh, he's been a professor of church history at what is now African International, African International University. And uh, a, a writer, uh, a speaker, and, and just uh, a brother who's been over there equipping uh, the, the people of Africa for the work of the gospel over there. So it's a privilege to have him with us this morning. So thank you, Mark. And thank you, Pastor Jeremy. The uh, partnership between South Shore Baptist Church and uh, the work of leadership development going on in East Africa uh, through uh, African International University and its subsidiary school, Nairobi Evangelical Graduate School of Theology, the pastoral training arm of the university, uh, has been uh, really quite powerful. Two years ago, you sent a team, uh, Pastor Seth and uh, his wife Cindy and Steve and Cindy Lyle. And uh, when they were there, they had a real impact, both on our school, they helped install new student information software that we've been using uh, with great profit ever since. Uh, but they also did a, uh, a needs assessment survey of a slum area uh, near the church that we belong to in Nairobi. It's a, it's a slum that we knew was there, had prayed about it, but hadn't done anything. It was right in our backyard, practically, uh, from the church. And for years, just neglected it. But uh, through the sort of house-to-house uh, surveying and, and uh, visitation done by the South Shore Baptist team, we got enough information to launch a medical camp just a few months later. And uh, over 5,000 people came to that medical camp, uh, many who, who were in very serious medical uh, need but couldn't afford uh, even a, a clinic. Uh, a number of people came to the Lord. We had uh, a Muslim family start coming to the church. Uh, we now are committed, uh, this local church is now committed to making sure that we don't neglect the ministry in our backyard. And in Bulbul, uh, the name of this slum is part of, of what uh, makes this church tick. It's part of our vision for mission. All that happened because you sent four people uh, uh, in 2009 to see if there was a need. I don't know how to get ready for this next year when you're sending ten you know, I mean, if four could make that kind of impact, uh, ten is will send me to the retirement home. I, you know, I just don't don't know how I can stand it. But uh, we are very thrilled, uh, Pastor Seth and team that he's recruited will be coming uh, in uh, June of 2010. And if you are, if you feel God pull, tugging on your heartstrings to come to Africa, uh, convince Pastor Seth that ten is just not a biblical enough number. Twelve or uh, might be much more biblical. We want to uh, turn our attention today to the Word of God in Revelation 21, 1 through 8. Because it's a word for both Africa and for America from this text. And you might say, uh, on the face of it, what has Africa to do with North America? Uh, not only are we geographically 
worlds apart, but culturally and economically, and you name it, it's, it's two different worlds. Africa is the poorest of the world's continents. North America, probably the richest. Uh, Africa, the place where most of the world's violent hotspots um, live. Darfur and Eastern Congo. Eastern Congo uh, has been the bloodiest place on the globe since World War II. Four million lives lost, uh, either directly or indirectly, through the civil war that has gone on in Eastern Congo. Uh, we in America live in relative peace. Um, yeah, we have a war on terror going on, but it doesn't, uh, doesn't mean that when I walk out of the door in the morning, I'm worried about a civil war breaking out in Boston. You know, I, we live in relative stability uh, here in the West. But here's something that the two continents do have in common. They're both embroiled in serious and complicated culture wars between Christians and the surrounding society. We who live in the post-Christian West feel the, the subtle and sometimes not so subtle hostility from the media, from politicians, from public school systems, from uh, uh, the worlds of science and, uh, and uh, uh, the media and, and Hollywood against the gospel and against its values. In Africa, African Christians flush with post-Western forms of Christianity, face more open hostility. We in America fight hedonism and greed and, and, uh, and uh, consumerism. In Africa, the church fights Muslim extremism, war, spiritual opposition from traditional religion. In America, we fight as Christians uh, a politics that is becoming more and more secularized. In Africa, Christians watch as politics becomes more corrupt and more and more tribalized. In America, we watch our children drift away into neo-paganism. In Africa, Christians watch their children die at an early age or drift into the despair of hopelessness at ever getting a job. The faces of the culture war may look differently, but the fact of the culture war is the same for both African Christians and American ones. The oppressive attack on the Christian faith, on Christian life and uh, values by a hostile world and its antagonistic ideas, oppositional morals, and hostile culture. I don't know about you, but for me, it, it puts me on the defensive a lot. And you know, I get angry a lot, uh, sometimes just even watching a commercial. You know, and it uh, makes me wonder where God is sometimes. But the biggest discouragement I face in the culture wars is not just the war that's going on around me, it's the war that's going on in me. Because uh, it's not just that, oh, those people out there, they're so greedy and consumerist and full of uh, less pride, unbelief. I'm full of these things. I fight these things. And I must say that I get so spun around by uh, my own inner conflicts that I sometimes wonder what side I'm on in these wars. Maybe you know how I feel. So we can, we can say... Uh, on Tuesday, when we go to the, the ballot box, to the, the polls, I'm going to bring my anger with me, my frustration, my righteous indignation at uh, where our world is going, where our nation is going. But if we take seriously what John has to say to us in Revelation 21, 
there is a better way to fight the culture wars. There's a better way to inspire the way we vote and the way we live and the way we respond to a post-Christian West and a post-secular Africa. John lived in a time in which the surrounding culture was more hostile than ever. Now, you'd say, well, you know, they killed Jesus. That's pretty hostile. How could it be worse uh, at the end of the first century than it was at the beginning? Well, it was worse because by the end of the first century, Rome had declared itself a deified state. The emperor was God. And if you didn't uh, uh, worship that God at the state temples, then you were subject to police action. And when Christians refused, they were jailed or dispossessed. John the Apostle was living in exile because of this increasingly hostile Roman state. And a word came to him in the midst of his dark hour. And it's a word that he was able to speak to his generation of Christians and that has spoken to every generation of Christians who have felt the pressure and the oppression of culture wars. It's a message of hope. A message about joy. In Revelation 21, he's given a vision of the mission of God completed. And it's that vision that becomes the message for us about fighting our own culture wars in the 21st century. Here's God's word to us from Revelation 21. You and I will overcome the enemies of the moment by the ecstasy in his mission. Now let me say that again. That may not jump out immediately to you from Revelation 21. We want to see it in a moment, but but here it is, what God wants you to know today and what He wants you to walk away with. You and I will overcome our enemies of the moment only through the ecstasy that comes from His mission. What do I mean by ecstasy? Before we jump into the text, I, I better define that. I don't have in mind uh, primarily a controlled substance of the amphetamine family. Uh, that's not what I'm thinking of. And I don't have in mind uh, the frenzy of a religious fanatic. We, we think of the person in ecstasy as just somebody that's crazy. But by ecstasy, I mean a fairly dictionary definition of the term. An overwhelming feeling of great happiness or joyful excitement. It's an ecstasy that, that can happen in the middle of a jail like John was in or in the middle of culture wars that you and I are in. More than anger or frustration in the culture wars, this kind of joy, this overwhelming joy, takes our eyes off the world, frees us with an inner freedom, and helps us to act with joy. Even in the culture war, the joy of the Lord is our strength. We want to see this and hear God's message through John in Revelation 21, verses 1-8. through 8. So let's ask three questions that we'll uh, bring into the text and, and see what God's Word says. The first question is, and I'll spend more time on this one, what is the mission of God, according to these verses, and how does it generate ecstasy? And secondly, how can I know for sure that God's mission is going to win and that I'm going to be part of that big win? Because if ecstasy depends on the big win, and it doesn't happen, uh, then 
I'm, uh, I lose. Then the third question, what can I do daily? What can I do now to, to get this ecstasy, not just out there, but get it in me, to, to feel the force of this overwhelming joy that it might animate my witness now? All right, those are the three questions. Let's start with question one. What is the mission of God according to these verses, and how does it generate this ecstasy that will, will help us? Well, let me uh, focus on the first four verses. Let's read Uh, Let me read them for you. Then I saw, says John, a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, was coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a, a voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He'll wipe away, uh, he'll wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. These verses define the mission of God. And to to put it in very simple terms, the mission of God is making everything new. Making everything new. Well, you know, we had a new world in Genesis 1 and 2. uh, A world of nothing but beauty. God looked at it all and said, "It's, it's really good. I love it. But by Genesis 3, that beautiful new world had become old really fast. It becomes broken by sin and and uh, greed, and envy, and, and pride, and unbelief, and, and the whole catalog of human sin, and sorrow, and misery begins to fall out from that initial brokenness. And it gets old. You know, sin, the characteristic response to sin in most people's hearts when it's over is, is that all there was? You know, It's not guilt, it's disappointment. Guilt comes later. But that old world gets old really fast in our lives. Whoops. This is a communion Sunday, not baptism. So uh, just getting rid of the water so that I don't get tempted to do that sacrament. Uh, These verses define then the mission of God of making everything new. Now, there's a number of words that the New Testament likes to use for the word new, like the word neo. We recognize that. Uh, nowadays, everybody's a neo-something. Um, I don't know. Do they have neo-Pilates yet? Uh, it's probably coming uh, somewhere down the, down the road. But uh, uh, everybody's a neo-something. So we, we recognize neo as, as a term that means uh, sort of something brand new. Uh, so uh, we have neo-babies. You know, that They come in the world of brand new. Uh, something that hasn't happened before. But the word here is not neo, it's the word kainos, and unfortunately we don't really use that in English. Uh, but it means to take something old and to make it as good as new, or maybe sometimes better than it was. And that's the word that's used here. It's used uh, three or four times in the next few verses, the word kainos. So it's God not saying that the new heavens and the new earth are uh, something that uh, means he makes the old earth go poof, and then he's going to start over. He's so disappointed with what happened. No, he takes that which has been ruined, and he restores it again. 
This isn't a mission of God that, that he just uh, decides on in Revelation 21. It's a mission of God that has spanned the whole Bible. It begins with Genesis 12 and, and continues on all the way through the Bible. That God said to Abraham, through you, the nations of the world will be blessed. And that through his grace, his baraka, his blessing, he's going to produce through Abraham's uh, offspring a missionary movement that will restore all things to their original blessedness. Now, particularly, what, what areas of life does he, he have in mind in this mission of God? Uh, there are four areas we can point to in Revelation 21, in the opening verses as well as later in the chapter. And let me use an acronym then to give you a handle on these four areas. So I'm going to use the acronym EDEN. Okay. My children say I'm both anachronistic and anachronomistic. And so here's, a, here's an acronym that uh, I was too tempted to avoid. Uh, EDEN. E-D-E-N. Let, let's see what they stand for. The first E talks about the Ecclesia Perfected. The people of God made new. This is the biggest thing that happens in Revelation 21. I mean, lots of big things happen. This is the biggest. The new Jerusalem descends from heaven as a bride of Christ. And it represents the church around the world. The church now made complete. Uh, as Revelation 5 had, had prophesied in its wonderful song, every tribe and, and language and people and nation. The nations of the world now brought in to the fellowship of the people of God. And this picture of the completed church is one of beauty. And the image of, of the bride, not only does it connect us to the church in Ephesians 5, it reminds us that there is great beauty in the bride. You know, if a, a bride walks through those doors on her wedding day, it's, we all we stand up, you know, we all go, oh, beautiful. Because it's a climactic moment. And so through the doors of heaven, through the gateways of heaven, comes the bride, you know, ready for that final union with her bridegroom, God himself. We're told about this uh, perfected church that the very foundations of the church uh, mentioned in, in chapter 21, verse 14, are the apostles. And that should give all of us a little bit of encouragement because, you know, the apostles had their issues. They were complicated people. You have the doubting Thomases. You have the exuberant and rash Peters. You've got the politically overzealous Simons. You have the wealthy Matthews. And they had their own issues and they had trouble getting along with each other and their issues. And yet in a glorified church, all of these kinds of people have a place. The doubting Thomas churches of the skeptical Europe or the exuberant Peter-type charismatic churches of, of the global south of Africa or the Simon the Zealot politically oriented churches of Latin America, the wealthy Matthew-type churches of, of North America. All of these who were once broken and limited and had such a narrow focus are now made whole and, and made beautiful and, and put together in a way that only God and His mission could do. 
And then ensues a long list of gems and, you know, I don't know my jaspers from my garnets. So this, the description is somewhat wasted on me. But if you're a jeweler, you know, you're just got the cash register going, you know, adding up uh, just how expensive this bride and her beauty uh, is. But that's the point of, of the precious stones, just to say it's beautiful beyond beautiful. Imagine anything in this world that is beautiful and there the church of Jesus Christ perfects it. It, it. it surpasses that beauty. One day, this church and all other faithful churches of Jesus Christ around the world will be the most dazzling thing in creation. It's not, uh, uh, you know, purple mountain majesties and, we, you know, I even forget it, the waving grain. Uh, they're beautiful, but compared to the church, they're nothing. It is the church of Jesus Christ that will be the most dazzling wonder of the world. Now we are weak in so many ways, just like the, the uh, churches, uh, uh, seven churches in the early part of Revelation. But one day we will be seen for what we really are. The work of God's mission. Beautiful beyond compare. The wonder of the world. To look upon this city of God and its splendor will produce ecstasy. That's the E. Ecclesia perfected. The D is delight will be restored. No more idols. No more interruptions in our our joy. No more asterisks in our happiness. But only the unalloyed, pure delight in God and the success of His mission. Notice verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men. And he will live with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. And then verse 4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. This is the restoration of intimacy with God and the delight that comes through intimacy. Just as the highest experience of human ecstasy is the act of marriage so the highest delight in the human heart comes when it shifts from idols and the addictions of this world to our God and to that covenant marriage with Him. As Peter says, this this joy will be unspeakable and full of glory. And there won't be anything that will will, uh, rob us of that moment. It's not like... uh, you know, in the middle of the wedding service, someone's going to knock over a glass of water and you know, ruin it. Uh, it's not going to be that uh, uh, we're in the middle of a, a great moment of joy and then we say, yeah, but then I have to go back to my dead-end job or my dead-end relationships. No, no, there'll be no pain. There'll be no death. There'll be no mourning. There'll be no tears. Anything that could take away from our delight will be removed by our God. And all we will be able to experience is the ecstasy of our marriage covenant with Him. It's coming. It's part of the Eden Project. It's the D in Eden. But there's also a, uh, another E. The earth made new. In verse 1 it says uh, there'll be no more sea. Uh, and if you own a boat, you probably feel like walking out right now. What? No sea? In the... uh, if, if I were to say this down in Virginia, it would be the surfers who would walk out. You know, no more sea. 
But this is not see in a, in a physical sense, because already in Genesis 1, God had declared that to be part of his creation and good. This is the sea in a theological sense, in a, a book of Revelation sense. Because all through the book, the sea is a symbol of chaos and evil. It's, it's a source of evil. There are a lot of expressions of evil in the book of Revelation, but where do they come from? Well, they come trudging up out of the sea. They get washed onto the shores. Beasts and antichrists and monsters and, and temptresses and Babylons come out of the sea. But in this restored Eden, nothing will corrupt the new Eden. There was a an evil that invaded the garden in Genesis chapter 3, that will never happen again. The very sources of evil will be destroyed. And we see here Eden as a, an urban world. This is a, a world that has been entirely urbanized, and yet it's, it's more beautiful than we can imagine. It's not urban blight, it's urban beauty. And it indicates that while we have so much trouble balancing between uh, caring for creation and preserving the environment and proper development of the, of the environment. Uh, we, we tend to do one or the other. We lurch between extremes. God will get it right. Uh, the earth will be renewed. It'll, it'll be paradise, but an urban paradise. Full development and yet maximum beauty. It's not at the expense of the earth, but in fact the earth's potential will be fully realized by the mission of God on that great moment. So paradise will be restored. Eden will be made, uh, the earth will be made new. And then the final end in Eden, nations will be healed. The curse of sin and death, which has produced the suffering of the nations, will come to an end. The city of God will belong to all nations. In verse 24 of Revelation 21, it says, The nations will walk by its light, that is the light that's in the city, God himself, and the kings of the earth... You see that? Verse 24, will bring their splendor into it. Now, this is a great place to begin with. It's a perfected church. It's a uh, earth made new. It's, it's a place of delight only and nothing that can destroy delight. And yet, it's not enough for God because his Eden project talks about the nations being healed. And now all of the nations and the empires and the people groups in all of history who have been brought into the kingdom of God by Faith in Jesus Christ and by the grace of God, they will bring their cultures and all of the achievements of their cultures, all their splendor into it. They'll be healed. They won't bring long lists of complaints. They won't bring the bodies of their dead children or of their soldiers. They simply bring their splendor because all that is wrong will be made new. In chapter 22, we read that the leaves of the tree of life are for the healing of the nations. All injustice, all bad government, all bad laws, all poverty, all institutionalized violence, gone. Because the nations will be healed. Healed by our God. That's God's Eden project. Now the question is, if that's what the mission of God is, and it, it's going on now, and it will be, it'll culminate at, at the end of history, how do I get Excited about that. How do I draw joy from that? John shows us how. John's in jail. He's in exile. He's feeling the force of, of the uh, culture wars of his day, the hostile culture. 
And after he sees all of this, uh, we jump over to chapter 22 of Revelation, verses 8 and 9, and, and look what happens there. Here's verse 8. John's being painfully honest with us. I'm sure he w- would want a more uh, theologically proper response, but, but he tells us exactly what he did, at least in his vision. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and had heard and seen them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who had been showing them to me. But he said to me, don't do it. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers and the prophets and all who keep the words of this book. Worship God. Now, John's response is blasphemous, right? But he's experiencing ecstasy. The ecstasy comes directly from a Greek word, ekstasis, and it literally means an out-of-body experience. Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean fanaticism, but it certainly means you're you know, lightheaded. Uh, you know, you're feeling high, as it were. And this is a, a theological high. He sees this vision and he, he worships an angel. Now, he knows better than that. You know, he was with Jesus. He, he's writing all these Bible books. He knows better than that. He just can't help himself. He's, he's taken away with unalloyed ecstasy. He responds in that way. Why? Be, be, to what he has seen and heard. He's not there yet, just like we aren't. But God showed him this. Gave him a vision of this and, and gave him his promises about this. That this is the world to come. And even that alone, even before he experienced it firsthand, produced this response. Why this response? Because beauty dazzles. Beauty dazzles. I venture to say, those of you uh, men here who, when you fell in love with the person who is now your wife or your significant other, um, you had those moments where when she came through the door, you got lightheaded, your knees you know, wobbled a little bit, you, you stuttered maybe. Uh, you know, there were those moments in which just seeing that person dazzled you into a state very much like John experienced here. The beauty that we will see through the eyes of John and through the ministry of the Holy Spirit as he opens our eyes and enlightens us can produce that response to beauty. Ecstasy is the response to beauty. But more than that, it's not just that he saw beauty. He saw our true home. And I think that is perhaps even a deeper reason for his ecstatic response. You know, we were made for God. We were made for Eden. We weren't made to fight God and to live in a fallen world and to break His laws and rebel against His rule and spurn His love and make each other miserable and spoil His earth and live as prisoners to the law of sin and death. That's not what we were made for. That's not our home. We've been living here a long time, but it's still a foreign country. And deep in all that is human within us, we know that we were made for another place. And John's deepest soul responds to seeing his real home for the first time. And the ecstasy that can come even in the midst of his misery in in exile to see his home before his eyes in a vision. And our best moment in this world is the feeling of being an alien, not really fitting in, of something undefinable missing even on our best days. 
Earthly joys are wonderful, but they're just a foretaste. They're not the full thing of that greater joy that will come when we are home. Not to a disembodied state in heaven, but to a paradise restored on earth. The dwelling place of God is with men. He comes here. He transforms here. He'll have one foot in Hingham and one foot in Nairobi, and and He'll change and transform them all. We were made for Eden. Our hearts will always be homeless until we find our way back home. John knows it, you and I know it, and that's why the mission of God produces ecstasy. That's question number one. What is the mission of God? How does it produce ecstasy? But there's another question. Question two, how do I know for sure the mission of God is going to win and that I'll be part of that big win? I mean, this is the future. A lot of things can happen between now and then, right? Uh, Anybody in this room that's not had dreams that never happened, uh, you know, um, yeah, we've all had disappointments. How do I know we're not going to be disappointed? And if that's so, then it's going to certainly dampen my ability to draw ecstasy from the Eden Project completed. John gives us a very simple answer to how we can know for sure that we will be part of the big win, that that the big one will happen and that we can be part of it. And that answer simply is Jesus Christ. We see him revealed in verses 5 and 6. Hear these words. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it's done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who's thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. Who's the great agent of this Eden project? Who's the great agent of the mission of God? We're told here it's Jesus. He introduced himself in Revelation chapter 1 as the Alpha and the Omega. And he pictures himself here then as the one who is on the throne with his father, ruling now and sending a river of life into his redeemed and restored world. As the Alpha, he's the Lord of those great Alpha events of creation and redemption, his death and his resurrection. And just as certainly as those things happened in the past, As the Alpha and the Omega, he will make sure that those who hold on to those Alpha events will be brought all the way to the Omega finale. What he has begun cannot be thwarted until it's complete. When Christ said on the cross in John 19, it's finished, it wasn't just sins have been covered so that now I can personally know God. It wasn't just about me or you. That's true. That that did happen. But he knew, and in his mind, he knew that the new heavens and the earth would now come because his blood paid for those new heavens and those new earth. And those who claim him as Savior and Lord now get the citizenship in Revelation 21 and all the benefits that happen. You see, salvation can be pictured like the old Puritans used to say, like a a golden chain. And that's how it's pictured in Romans 8. And uh, that chain has, a golden chain, has all these beautiful gifts of salvation God's giving to us. And the one that we can grab now is receiving Jesus as our Lord and Savior and being given the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's, that's what Peter said to the crowd in Acts 2. That's what we get now. We get this fellowship of the church. We get a mission. That's now. That's the, the, the link we hold on now. But it's a golden chain. And, 
in every gift of salvation, uh, that there will be a, a Bible translation for the ife, that, that uh, the global south will rise up and, and praise the name of God as never before, that, that uh, one day European skepticism will give way to, to a new faith, that one day the whole Muslim world will come to Christ, as, as Romans 11 pictures, that, that as we go down that chain and we finally get to Revelation 21, if we have the chain nearest to us, because it's an unbreakable chain, we'll get the chain, the link, furthest away. Because of Jesus Christ, I know there will be a big win. And because I know Him, I know that big win will be mine. And then finally, question number three. How do I get this ecstasy? I'm, I'm, I'm hearing it. Uh, I'm wanting it, but I'm not feeling it, you're saying. All right, well, we have skeptics in the crowd. Uh, you look back in the last week, it wasn't all that ecstatic, you say. You're not feeling all that much ecstasy right now. You're looking forward to a week, and, and, and you're not expecting there to be um, you know, bushel loads of ecstasy ahead. How do I get that inside of me? What John experienced and, and what we are promised to experience so that I can respond to a hostile world with a a joyful witness. Well, there's two paths. Two paths you can take. One is the path of religiosity. You can just work harder. Get more involved. Double your faith commitment. You know? Which is a good thing to do, by the way. But the path of religiosity, you only go f- so far. Because at some point, we realize, hmm, we're... we're so broken, we'll even turn church into something that needs to be saved. You know? I'll turn my singing into something that needs to be covered by the blood of Christ. Because when I read uh, in 7 and 8 about the, the murderers and the liars and, and uh, the sorcerers and all these terrible people that, that have been oppressing the church through the ages and will be excluded from the new heavens and the earth, I'm there. If you take the Sermon on the Mount seriously, Jesus takes external sins and he internalizes them. What's going on in your heart? So maybe, you, you know, you didn't uh, swing the black cat around, uh, you know, when you were cursing somebody. Uh, but you cursed them in your heart. That's an act of sorcery as much as doing anything that uh, our friends in Salem might do. So I didn't murder anybody. I never pulled the trigger. But in my heart, pulled a lot of triggers. If it's just my religiosity upon which I depend and and expect God to somehow owe me ecstasy, I'm in trouble. It's not going to work. It's a dead end. It's not a path. What is the path then? If that's not going to work, what else will? We're told in verse 6. Do you see verse 6? Jesus couldn't make it plainer what we need to do. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. It's the needy that will get the ecstasy. Not the rich. It's the hungry. It's the thirsty. It's those who are longing for it. It's those who are feeling the emptiness and eager for change. It's those who, like the the widow that stood in front of the judge's house and just stubbornly said, I need help. Until the judge came down in the middle of the night and answered that request. To the thirsty I will give to drink without cost. By grace, 
the river of life that flows from our Savior can be ours each day. What's he talking about? What am I talking about? I'm talking about being filled with the Holy Spirit. And you say, well, I've heard about that all my life. And it's something that happens every once in a while. Not made to happen every once in a while. It's made to happen all the time. But some of us have stopped asking for it. Some of us have just stopped asking for it. And even worse, we've stopped expecting it. And so the gospel has become dull. And our witness has become dull. And our worship has become dull. And we don't know why. It's because we've lost our thirst. Because if we're thirsty, he'll give us to drink. And the joy will come. How do I know it's the Holy Spirit? It could be any other thing. It's just an image. Well, for John... When he wrote his gospel, he quoted Jesus that the water of life that satisfies thirst, both in John 4 with the woman at the well and in John 7 at the Feast of Tabernacles, was a reference to the Holy Spirit. It's not about religion, not about morality, not about winning. Do you believe in a second baptism? It's not about being good. It's it's about grace and calling out to God for the ministry of the Holy Spirit daily in my situation and producing that vision of his mission. Now, and its victories, I was downstairs, uh, as some of you were, to hear of, of the Jesus film and all that God is doing through that incredible project. That is the mission of God unfolding, and one day it will be perfected and completed. The Spirit can give me that vision. I can see it like John did through the mind's eye, and I can read the promises that are attached to it, and I can be filled with the joy that comes from the Holy Spirit. Because the fruit of the Holy Spirit is love and joy and peace. But I have to want it. I have to ask for it. I have to seek it. And I can't settle for anything less. C.S. Lewis once said that we're too easily satisfied. We'd rather play in the mud puddle than have a day at the sea. We need to want more out of this life. Not more from each other, not more from this church, but more from God because He has more to give. He has ecstasy. The thirsty will get to drink from the river of grace and they will be satisfied. What's God's message for us? We need to fight this war. We're not to be passive. We need to get involved politically. We need to vote on Tuesday. We need to to, uh, stand up for Jesus. But don't do it as angry, resentful reactionaries. Do it as ecstatics. Do it as people who have seen the mission of God and are delighting in it. Overcome the enemies of the moment by the ecstasy of the mission. Because because of this mission, because of the great God of this mission and His cross, It is still true today what was true for the people of God in the Bible. It will be the joy of the Lord that is indeed our greatest strength. Let's pray. And so, Father, we do ask that you would make us ever more relevant to the mission of God by getting rid of our dullness, our frustrations, our pettiness, our complaints, our resentments. You know what's in my heart. You know what's in the heart of my brothers and sisters. 
Make us thirsty for that river of life that is the Holy Spirit. And may we seek filling all the time. And may we find you to be a God who supplies and satisfies. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.